I'm Susan Moran. And I'm Ted Wood. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, January 7th, 2020. Coming up, we'll offer two interviews. The first one is for you bird lovers out there. We'll interview Allison Holleran of the Audubon Rockies about an upcoming science, citizen science project to identify birds at risk from climate change. And then we'll discuss some colorful and critical wildlife conservation efforts with our guest, Joel Berger. He's a CSU professor whose latest book is called Extreme Conservation, Life at the Edges of the World. But first, I want to welcome my co-host Ted Wood to the show. He's a seasoned photojournalist who's covered environmental and plenty other issues for many years for publications and organizations ranging from Smithsonian Magazine to The Nature Conservancy. And he's co-founder of The Story Group. It's an independent multimedia journalism company based here. Welcome, Ted. Thanks so much for joining us. You're welcome, Susan. Nice to be here. So let's dive into a couple news headlines in science before the interviews. As you may know, measles is seeing a big comeback in the U.S. and other developed countries. The World Health Organization in 2000 declared measles eradicated, but 371 cases of the disease were confirmed in 2018 in the U.S., and there may have been 10 times more cases than that last year. Measles is one of the most infectious human diseases, but its evolutionary past is still unclear. Because the disease spreads so fast and affords those who are infected with lifelong immunity, the disease requires a population of at least a quarter million people to sustain itself. Although humans were building cities of that size by 400 BCE, there were so few genetic samples of the virus that its origin was estimated to be in the 1200s. A new sample from a girl who died in 1912 was analyzed by a team in Berlin. The new analysis pushed the origin back by almost 1,000 years. The researchers used techniques developed in the last decade to extract the viral genetic material called RNA. The evolutionary relationship among all the samples suggests the disease could have jumped to humans as early as 345 BCE. That's just when cities of the right size were being built. So what, you ask? Well, the new methodology means that all kinds of old samples lying around in museums can be assessed for their contributions to many diseases. A pre-publication form of the study was published last week in the website called BioRxiv. In another case of new light being shed on ancient creatures, a new study reveals that fossils that researchers had believed to be a separate species were actually most likely teenage Tyrannosaurus rexes. Who knew? The findings may help put it to rest a long-simmering debate among paleontologists over the T. rex family tree. Some scientists have argued that small Tyrannosaurus remains that were found in the fossil record belong to a separate species. But by counting growth marks in the bones of two dinosaurs, researchers discovered that the two T. rexes were not adult specimens of a smaller Tyrannosaurus species. Rather, they were sub-adults with high growth rates. This means they were likely juvenile T. rexes. Some 66 million years after the demise of dinosaurs, there's clearly much more mystery to dinosaur, not just human, teens. The study was published last week in the journal Science Advances. Blackbirds singing in the dead of night Take these broken wings and learn to fly All your life You were only waiting for this moment to arise. This moment has arrived. You're listening to KGNU Science Show. I'm Susan Moran. 
So here's one for you bird lovers, and for others who've been wanting to do some boots-on-the-ground science without needing a PhD or even an undergrad degree. So starting on January 14th, the Audubon Society will launch a month-long citizen science program to better understand how birds are responding to climate change specifically. According to an Audubon report last year, up to two-thirds of North American birds are vulnerable to extinction due to climate change. But the good news is that there are many opportunities to protect birds from this existential threat. And you can be part of the solution. Our guest is Alison Holleran. She's the executive director of Audubon Rockies and a vice president of National Audubon Society. And she joins us from our office in Fort Collins. Welcome to the show, Alison. Thanks for having me, Susan. So what is Climate Watch specifically? And I think many people know, and some have probably taken part in the Christmas Count, which has gone on for many decades, right? How, how does this differ, and what's it all about? Yes, so Climate Watch is all about um, giving an opportunity for citizen community scientists to get out and to really get some great data to inform how birds are respond- responding to climate change. As you mentioned, Audubon in um, October just released uh, Survival by Degrees. It was mm. our second climate report that kind of, you know, outlines um, what, how birds are going to respond to climate change as we move forward. It has a, you know, a scenario using three different warming uh, scenarios. And so in... In this report, it is a modeling exercise. And so when you do a model, it's important for everyone to realize that modeling exercises or reports are predictions of what we, our best guess of what's going to happen. Mm -hmm, But they're not Um, on the ground. Exactly. And so that's what Climate Watch is trying to do. It's trying to validate um, the model that we have put together. And so it, it's really, really critical, much like the Christmas bird count. The Christmas bird count has been going on for over 100 years, and that data was actually included in our climate models and helped produce this report. So data that citizens can gather is wildly important to how we manage our birds in the future, how we manage our habitat, and thus, you know, give, give a space for the future of birds and, quite frankly, for ourselves, because birds are the canary in the coal mine. Yeah, literally and figuratively. So mm-hmm. would the goal be then to develop these more precise models? I mean, ultimately... I presume the goal is to help save the birds? Yes, exactly. So what we did was we took um, a group of target species, and these are birds that are, one, easily identified, two, we have a a pretty robust data set for them, um, and three, should be um, obvious in in the region um, during the time of the climate watch, which is January 15th through February 15th. That's the winter climate watch. And Mm. we also have one in the summer, so we get two different life cycle um, pieces. Um, And so, yeah, it is to, you know, say, yeah, this is, according to our data, um, the climate models, that the predictions that we made are, are true. These birds are moving. These birds are using other areas. Or... You know, actually, you know, these variables seem more important, and what we predicted is is not. Um, but I will say, Climate Watch has been going on for two years, and there is a report online that you can look at. And the the data that we have thus far, which is really baseline, 
um, is showing that our climate models are holding true. And what about um, the Christmas count? A little too soon to tell what the data show from the 2019? Yes. So the 2019, it usually takes around eight months. It's a whole validation process. So once all the data is entered, you know, it it takes a while to make sure all that data is kind of cleaned up and corrected, and then we can we can also use that um, use that data. So the Christmas bird count just happened in December. And I'm curious. So no doubt, climate change is an existential threat to all of us, birds included. But there are certainly other major threats for birds, right, and other animals. But habitat destruction, cats, for that matter, probably the biggest one. Um, are you yeah. leaving some of these key things out for? reasons of just practicality or what's why prioritize this versus sort of the other threats um we're not leaving those other things out so two separate things in the climate modeling that we did we did some of the variables that we used in that modeling are things like urbanization which is habitat loss those factors are also in that model to show where birds are and where they might be in a, in a warming scenario. So we did include those things. Um, and climate, yes, is one of the number one threats to birds and people um, going mm-hmm. forward, and that's why we're focusing on it. That doesn't mean we're not focusing on things like habitat loss and keeping cats indoors and things like that. We're still working very hard on those um, pieces, and, and really and truly, it all folds into climate. If we are saving habitat, then, you know, we're decreasing urbanization and lessening our carbon footprint, et cetera, et cetera. So they all kind of, you can't really separate those out. They mm. all kind of fold together. Yeah. But climate is, is, you know, is a problem, a big problem, 100%. Yep. So starting next week when it launches, what actually will people do? Give a sense of like, okay, I'm there, boots on the ground. What am I going to be doing? Sure. So if you are a Climate Watch volunteer, you have even be either designed a grid or been given a grid by a Project Watch leader. And you can do all this, get on our website and see how you sign up. It's, it's pretty easy. Um, and then you go out and you have a beautiful morning counting birds. Hmm. You do not have to be a bird expert like you mentioned before. That's good to know. Um, yeah, yeah, I think it's intimidating for some people, but... I think uh, I would encourage everyone to get out there. It's a small list of species. You do, you have a little grid, and you go out, and on that grid, there are 12 points within that grid. It takes a couple of hours. You stand, you look, you listen for an allotted amount of time, and then you move to the next point. It's a lovely way to start the day. Quite meditative, in fact, it sounds. Right. Okay, what if you're colorblind? No problem. Um, If you're colorblind, one, in the winter, many of these birds have really drab colors anyway, (laughs) and you're listening really, truly. A lot of times, you know, you are listening for that sound for the bird rather than seeing the bird. Um, So it's it's a twofold. Colorblind, it doesn't matter. You can still participate, no problem. Well, it sounds like (laughs) such a great exercise in paying attention to what's around and yeah. within and certainly doing something for the planet and those beautiful sounding birds out there. So one more Absolutely. question, how can listeners find out more and how to get involved? Just jump on the audubon.org website backslash climate, climate watch, and it'll give you all that you need there. I will say if you don't find what you need there, 
please feel free to contact Audubon Rockies. We can help you get started. We can point you in the right direction and get you everything you need. There are already climate volunteers established in Colorado. Their um, uh, contact is there on, on how to sign up. And, but again, if you run into any problems, you know, things change from year to year, please feel free to just reach out to me directly. Um, I will mention, too, this weekend in Fort Collins at the Ozitlan Center from 9 to 4, we are having a climate conference, and I invite anyone to jump on our website, rockies.audubon.org, and register to see what else you can do. Um, Great. Well, thank you, and I'll put more info on the website. Um, Our time's up, but this is really fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Allison. Thank you so much for having me, Susan. I appreciate it. That was Allison Holleran. She's executive director of Audubon Rockies and a vice president of National Audubon Society. And as I said, we'll put some information on our website, howonearthradio.org. listening to KGNU Science Show, How on Earth. I'm Susan Moran. And I'm Ted Wood. Charismatic megafauna, like polar bears, grizzlies, and tigers, get lots of attention, and for good reason. But many lesser-known species, particularly those living in extreme environments, have been the obsession and research focus of our next guest. Like wild yaks, musk oxen, takines, and saigas. Get that. And Joel Berger is a professor of wildlife conservation at Colorado State University, and he's a senior scientist at wildlife, sorry, he's a professor at Colorado State University and senior scientist at Wildlife Conservation Society. And his latest book is called Extreme Conservation, Life at the Edges of the World. Joel joins us via phone from Fort Collins. Uh, let's, Let's get extreme, Joel. Welcome to the show. Hi, Ted. Hi, Susan. Thank you. Hi there. So your latest book is called Extreme Conservation, Life at the Edges of the World. Um, let's just just help us understand, what is extreme conservation? Uh, extreme conservation, like many words, is a semantic issue. But the gist is very simple. Animals that live in places that face very hard conditions. And so if you're living in the Himalayas at 18,000 feet, or if you're living at the top of the Arctic on land, one deals with a lot of extreme weather, and some of these species have extreme adaptations, meaning that they're doing things a little bit more to the edge. So, Joel, in your book, you you have a passage that is uh, beautifully describes uh, some of these animals you find in these environments. Can you read that for us? Sure. It's it's short. Um, and I'll give it a stab. If polar bears are the face of climate change, musk oxen are the heart. They're the largest land mammals of either polar realms, Antarctic or Arctic. Neither ox nor maker of musk, their name is a complete misnomer. A noble moniker is needed. One more set of um, comments for this. Um, These regal survivors have ethereal, black fur, two-foot horns that unfurl under a massive boss, and thick skirts drooping to the ground. They're an Arctic apparition, a Pleistocene 
remnant. <laughs> oh, that's beautiful. So what are some of the greatest threats to these animals, not just in the Arctic, but as you write in your book, the high-altitude environments such as the Himalayas and the Andes? Uh, the, the major threats are really the two things that I think most of the people who care about biodiversity and conservation on the planet realize. We've got climate-forcing issues, and we've got habitat manipulations, changes that are planet-wide. And so we have both anthropogenic direct factors that are erasing habitat, and then we have the insidious and both recognize now short-term and longer-term effects of climate modification. So, Joel, you mentioned that these, uh, in your book, that these animals are highly adapted to their environments to survive in these extreme places. Does that adaptation, that, that specific adaptation, also make them highly vulnerable to rapid changes where uh, they could not change slowly as nature changed, but, for instance, climate change? Would a rapid change in climate uh, particularly doom these animals? Absolutely, and I'll give a couple of examples. Um, everybody knows what moose are. We have moose in Colorado. We have moose that extend into the southern edge of the Arctic. Moose don't do well with warm temperatures. They have more ticks. They can't thermoregulate very effectively, and so they're having some serious issues where it is warming along the southern edges of their range. And muskox, which are only an Arctic-adapted species, they're not doing so well either because of extreme weather events. In the middle of winter, at times, um, you can get rain in January and February, and then there's a hard freeze. And what this happens to do is that as it gets cold again, mothers who are gestating, so pregnant females, their fetuses can't get adequate condition, and they're born lighter, and light births mean that the probability of death is much greater. And so, you know, just with these two examples, muskox and moose, we can see some of the onerous um, challenges that they're facing from climate. And this is independent from human-related, uh, direct human-related effects. Mm, boy, so those like the musk oxen, so specifically adapted and so vulnerable right now. Is there anything happening, say, here in the U.S. in particular, on the policy or legislative front that gives you some optimism? Um, I'll swing back real quickly on one other issue on muskox, and then, Susan, I'll, direct, um, I'll answer directly. With climate changing, there are more polar bears on land, particularly in the Russian Arctic. And muskox don't deal with polar bears very well. Hmm. And so we're also seeing a very strong change in ecosystem dynamics as a consequence of the loss of ice. Um, okay, so swinging back uh, with respect to policy and some optimism, um, we know that humans are manipulating landscapes, and as a consequence, we have a lot of fragmented populations, particularly of big game species, species that would be like bighorn sheep or mountain goats or even pronghorn antelope. And what gives me some optimism is that there is, uh, which has been recently introduced into Congress, a Corridors, Wildlife Corridors Protection Act. Mm. I don't know how it will fare, but this basically is suggesting that we develop protected areas 
doesn't mean restrictions on business opportunities, but providing the kind of habitat to connect populations of A and B. For instance, in Wyoming, the only federal protected corridor throughout any place in the U.S. is from south, uh, the Grand Teton National Park to an area about 50 miles south. It's called Path of the Pronghorn. Mm. It's a 50-mile, it's actually a 40-mile-long corridor, about a mile wide, which gives pronghorn free movement back and forth toward winter ranges. And this was passed in 2008, um, and it's a little bit sad in that in the 12 years or 11 years since that, we haven't had much progress mm. to enact federal legislation that works at that level. Even though but data show that one start. is even though that one is quite successful. That right? one is is working fine and it's enabling pronghorn to move from summer range to winter range, although there's some challenges at the south end because of gas and oil. But overarchingly, this gives us hope. Hmm. So Joel, when we met twenty some years ago, um, you were working on that project, I believe, as well as um, a little bit, something a little bit more unusual that I'd like to ask you about. Uh, it refers to your re research methodology. I think you were the first uh, research scientist I'd ever been asked to photograph wearing a moose suit. And I would like you to tell tell our listeners um, your approach to your research um, in the way that you try to get into the minds and the behavior of the animals in a in a unique way. Okay, um, good question. Uh, it will look ridiculous if, if um, any of the <laughs> listeners Google up some pictures. But when wolves were being reintroduced into the Yellowstone system, as grizzly bears expanded from their basic refuges in Yellowstone Park, naive prey were being exposed to these predators. And we didn't know how these naive prey were going to respond. And one can't just sit and wait and hope for maybe observing one interaction every week or every two weeks. So as scientists, we dressed up as moose. That was 20-some years ago, you're right, Ted. And more recently, in the Russian Arctic and in the Alaskan Arctic, this time wearing a musk oxen suit, uh, a polar bear suit, I'm sorry, because we wanted to get inside the mind of these animals who hadn't seen predators or who haven't interacted with prey and to gauge their responses. And the best way to do that is to systematically approach them and look at how they're going to respond. Now, so some, that's what we did. Some people might call that a gimmick, Joel, um, but did you, did you have some uh, real research uh, data from this? Uh, yes. So um, we built this based on the approaches that two Nobel laureates did, and Conrad Lorenz, and Nico Tinbergen, who in the 1970s won Nobel Prizes in animal behavior for trying to understand animal responses. We followed in suit, and while it might seem like grandstanding, we gathered a lot of data. We published in the top-of-the-line peer-reviewed journals because how else do we ena enable adequate sample sizes? It's a really difficult thing to do, and so we've taken this novel approach, but it is built on the back of others who have successfully pioneered these approaches. Joel, there's uh, so much more to discuss with this, but unfortunately I think we're running out of a little time. I think maybe the listeners would like to know, um, 
with your research, studying these animals in these extreme environments, um, what should we be taking away from this? Uh, they're not they're not the kind of uh, landscapes and environments that we're used to seeing. Um, what is the what should be what what would your research like to inform us that we should know about? Um, I, I, two quick things. First is that. Um, some of these silent species, meaning off the radar for the public, they certainly contribute to the ecosystems that they live in. And we're all part of one living planet. And I think as we're starting to see, what happens offshore comes onshore. What happens to the big animals also happens to other species and systems. And ultimately, we're seeing the very direct effects on us. And so unless we find ways to dampen and live a little bit with a lighter footprint, we're all going to be suffering the same kind of issues already we are. Mm, so true. And one more I want to ask you, like, what stands out among your experimenting, your research, doing field work and beyond that has really changed you, like the way you think, the way you approach questions about these animals, about climate, about research itself? I, I think when one starts to watch and spend time with wild animals, it's no different than spending time with your horses or your dogs or your cats. You realize that individuals matter, that there are individual personas. It's not that every coyote is the same. They differ just like every person differs. Mm, well, thank you so much, Joel Berger, thank you, for Joel. coming on the show. Thank you, Ted. Thank you, Susan. And um, Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. That was Joel Berger. He's a professor of wildlife conservation at Colorado State University, and he's senior scientist at the Wildlife Conservation Society. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Joel <laughs> Beth Bennett. <laughs> this week's show was produced by Suze Moran in a moose suit and engineered by Maeve Conran. Additional contributions from Beth Bennett. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from The Beatles and Richie Valens. Visit our website at howonearth.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Susan Moran. And I'm Ted Wood.